Well, thank you for having me. I've got to say that uh, even from just walking in, um, it's actually been a bit of an emotional time for me. Your prayer, Paul, about uh, the welcoming of the nations and the welcoming of people, you know, of all kinds. Um, just a joy to see the makeup of your congregation. And uh, it's exactly what heaven's going to be like, isn't it? So appreciate that very much. Our passage for today is from Second <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 2, spilling into chapter 3. And I'm going to read that whole section for us, starting at 2.12. You'll see that the title for my talk today is, is meant to be a little bit um, provocative. Uh, Don't be a wimp like Moses. And it actually comes from verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3, where Paul says, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses. And so Paul is actually saying that we have a boldness. He has a boldness and we can have a boldness that is greater than Moses. What on earth does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to unpack today. This is a passage that is filled with emotion, actually. There's so many sensory parts about this. You'll see as I read it, it starts out with smell and then it moves on to touch, where it talks about the the tablets of stone and human heart. And then it moves on to this picture of of vision, of, of a shining face. So this is a picture, a passage, sorry, that is, is filled with uh, sensory perception. Watch out for that as we read it as well. 2 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave from there and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal processions, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and from the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it, in glory. Indeed, in this case, what, what, what once was glory, had glory, sorry, has come uh, 
sorry, I'll start again. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Amen. Ashley Graham is a TV presenter and plus-size model. She's been an inspiration to many people who struggle with body image. Listen to what she says about self-image and confidence. Confidence is not something that happens overnight. I've been working on it for years. I look in the mirror and I do affirmations to myself. I say, you are bold, you are brilliant, you are beautiful. If my lower tummy happens to be sticking out that day, I say, pooch, you are cute. <laughs> Listen to what Jen Sincero, a life coach, says about confidence. As far as self-confidence goes, so much of social media is about approval, getting likes, comparing our lives to others. Meanwhile, confidence is an inside job. It's about how you feel about yourself, regardless of what anyone else thinks. It's knowing that you're human, that you're flawed, and you're awesome in your own way. Now, I wonder what you think about all of this as you hear this, self-perception and confidence. Actually, in Paul's letters, he has a lot to say about self-perception and confidence, believe it or not. In Romans 6 verse 11, for example, Paul says, Reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Think about yourself this way. And then he goes on in an amazing verse, which I often tell my students, if it wasn't in the Bible, we probably wouldn't believe it could be there. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Incredible. See, based on self-perception, based on this perception of who you are in Christ, Paul then turns to tell them to step up with confidence. Paul sounds here as if he's speaking to a champion, to a warrior, someone who's wielding a sword and conquering a foe. And that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying that when we have a right sense of self-perception, we are able to turn and address sin in our lives. So I get the impression from Paul that self-perception and confidence are actually really important. Not just for those people outside these four walls, but actually for us who are inside these walls, us who are Christians. And yet, you know, this is a topic I don't think that many of us have thought too much about, actually. 
at least not in a Christian way. Maybe you've heard from the Ashley Grahams or the Jen Sinceros of this world, and maybe you've taken on board some of what they've said. But I doubt whether many of us have stopped to think, what does God say about self-perception and confidence? I think that we think, we as pastors at least, that this is not a particularly Christian topic, self-perception and confidence. But actually, the Bible has a lot to say about it. But the question that's probably on your mind right at this second is, why is he talking about this? Why this topic this morning? This is Mission Sunday, right? Self-perception and confidence, what have they got to do with missions? Well, it's because our section for today is all about Paul and his missionary activity, the struggles that he, he underwent and the confidence that came back into his life that allowed him to speak. And so what we're going to see today is that confidence actually comes through cross-cultural missions, believe it or not. That as not only we pour out into the nations, but as the nations pour back into us, we become transformed in a way that affects us. You know, so often when we think about cross-cultural missions, we only think about its effect on other people. And rightly so, of course. We're going out, aren't we, and focused on the lost, wanting to help people, wanting to give people the, the wonderful good news of Jesus and all that he's done. But if we do this, if, if all we think about is the outward look of things, and we don't realize that God is actually doing something amazing back into our lives to affect us, then we miss a whole big piece of this entire equation. You see, cross-cultural missions is not just about what we are doing for others. In God's plan, cross-cultural missions is also what those people are going to do in us and through us back into our own people. You know, I think many of us have reduced cross-cultural missions to tough mudder evangelism. What do I mean by that? You may not have heard of it. Listen up. Tough mudder is a movement right now where people go into an army, army obstacle-like course where they have ropes and walls and, of course, mud, which is where the name comes from. And all of it is about doing it tough. For hours you run around this obstacle course, either as an individual or as a team, trying to make it through this tough mudder. It's a test of endurance. And we think of cross-cultural missions, I think, so many ways like that. It's the tough mudder of evangelism, right? Evangelism, you go out and you, you do that scary thing of wanting to talk to somebody who's not a Christian who, and you don't know whether they want to receive the message or not, and so that's tough. But the tough mudder evangelism, isn't it, is when you have to go over extra barriers, language barriers. You have to dress different. You have to give up the luxuries of this world and go into a foreign country. And that's the way we see evangelism in so many ways. And, of course, that is true in many cases. But, again, what we miss when we see things simply this way is we miss this reverse effect this effect that God is actually doing something back to us when we minister to the nations. So my hope this morning is that as we cover this passage just briefly, that it will provoke you, 
It will encourage you and it will challenge you about the other side of cross-cultural missions. That is, what it does to us. Well, as we're thinking then about this subject of self-perception and confidence, let's notice from the start of of 2 Corinthians that Paul has reasons for doubt. Paul is not a happy camper at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1, verse 8, he basically tells us that in his missionary work into Asia, he has had such a difficult time that he's almost given up. Look at what it says in 1.8. The ESV translates it like this. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Amazing. The NRSV puts it this way, similarly. We were so utterly and bearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. And the NIV, which I grew up reading, says this. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. You get it, right? Paul's confidence is shot. It's drained away like water from a tub. In fact, Paul couldn't go on without help. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says that one reason why I didn't visit you, Corinthians, was because I couldn't bear to destroy the confidence that you would give back to me. He says in 2.2, For if I grieved you, Corinthians, who is left to make me glad? You get the sense, don't you, that Paul has, has totally drained away his confidence and sense of life and self itself. In chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, he actually tells us that an open door of ministry, of mission work, had come about in Troas, but he couldn't take it because he didn't have, Troas, because he didn't have Titus by his side to help him. Listen to what he says. Now, when I came, went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... And found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. This is incredible. This is like gobsmacking stuff. Paul, the powerful missionary, is actually telling us that he couldn't go on in ministry, even though the Lord had opened a door for him in Troas in Asia, because he couldn't find help his helper, Titus, with him. So this is the perfect setup, isn't it, for this discussion of confidence and missions. Rags to riches. We're starting with the rags. Right? Things are desperate for Paul. But notice then, things are about to turn around. And we see this happening in 2.14. A change in radical... Sorry, a radical change in confidence. Paul says in 2.14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal processions. Then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And then in 3.4, he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. These are not the words of a man who is drained away with despair any longer. He is turning instead with confidence and using that very word. And the irony here actually is that it sounds like some people are accusing Paul of being overconfident. Can't that happen sometimes? You know, you can get typecast by people. You're struggling, you're having a difficult time of life, but the Lord brings you out of that difficult time. And people, in a sense, 
maybe not even knowing, kind of want to hold you back, hold you down and say, you know, you're that person. You're that person who's struggled with despair. You're that person who's struggled with depression. This is a great lesson here in this passage, isn't it? The Lord is able to transform us. He takes the Apostle Paul in this moment of despair and he turns him around. Well, let's then move immediately to look at his reason for confidence. Why was so Paul so confident? What was it that flicked the switch? What was it that turned everything around? What was it that switched the breaker that had turned off the electricity, as it were, in his whole house? What allowed him to turn everything around? Well, I'm just going to come out and say it because this passage, quite frankly, has so much in it that we're not going to be able to dig around and find it sort of inductively. I just need to tell you what I think he's saying here. Paul is basically saying that it was the Gentiles written on his heart that transformed him. When he talks about the Holy Spirit in this passage, it's always in the context of the Spirit of God written, writing them on his heart. What he goes on to say is that because the Spirit of God has written them on his heart, he is able to go back to his own people, the Jews, and speak to them with a face that's shining brighter than Moses when Moses came down off the mountain. Isn't it incredible? Moses, you remember in the story in Exodus, comes down off the mountain and his face is shining bright because he's been with God. And he comes down to the people and he uncovers his face for a time, but then he covers it up. And Paul says the reason why he covers it up is so that people can't see that the glory is fading off his face. He's been in the presence of God briefly. He comes down and his face is shining because of it. But then because he's out of God's presence, the, the glory begins to fade. Paul in this passage climaxes with this amazing room of mirrors discussion he basically says all of us with unveiled faces are shining forth the glory of God from glory to glory which I think he means from your glory your glorious face to my glorious face and so the thing that turns everything around for Paul in this passage is the fact that he has ministered to the Corinthians and that they have been written on his heart. Incredible stuff. You know, one of the things that I think this passage contains and that is so amazing and so wonderful is the fact that Paul has been humbled and that is what allows him to receive back. Isn't it so true that that has been the problem all these years in missions that missionary work has been criticized for over the years. That missionaries go out into a place and they, their attitude is those poor people in that other country. You know, we, we are the ones who are resourced up. We are the ones who are well-trained. We have the best seminaries. We have the best preachers. We have the best churches. And so we, so we are going out to this poor nation and we are giving them the riches of what we have. There's a problem with that, isn't there? Because the reality is that as the Holy Spirit begins to work in a people and see them converted, they can minister back to us if we are humble enough to receive it. 
in ways that we cannot imagine. I was talking to one of my seminary students recently and he was telling me that there was a guy who just got out of prison and had joined their Bible study, their home group. And this guy had no education and he's just, he's just come out of prison and he's in their Bible study. He said, well, in our Bible study we have doctors, lawyers, ex-pastors, you know, everyone you can name in their Bible study. And he said, you would not believe the way this man has affected our group. And I said, yeah, isn't it amazing the way the Lord gives insights to people from his word? And he said, oh no, sorry, I said, isn't it amazing, you know, how someone's experience can affect you? He said, no, no, it's not his experience. This man's insights into God's word are amazing. He comes from the scriptures from a different angle and it opens up the truth of God's word to the rest of the group. This is what we're talking about here. I wonder whether Paul had to be humbled. The Jews, after all, have a reputation, don't they, of being a proud people, an insular people. Paul's first step in going out into missions is that the Lord has to break him in order that he can be open to receive the Corinthians back written onto his heart. You know, this is something that I really just want to move to apply now to a few different situations. You'll see in your bulletin that I've got three different sort of missionary situations that I've mentioned. And the first of those is North Africa. Recently, we had somebody come and speak at the seminary from North Africa and to talk about the, the movement uh, of Islam in that country and a very open-hearted discussion, quite frankly, of all of the difficult things that are being faced in North Africa at the moment. And as this precious sister began to talk about the hardship, it began to affect me. And then she told the story of this Muslim girl who had joined their school and who had been open to hear the gospel and had received Jesus. And then they showed an interview of her on the screen and to see the joy on her face, this lady who had come out of Islam. And then they mentioned the story of this homeless boy who they had reached out to in the city and found and, and taken him away and, and he'd come to the school and not only had he been born again, come to know Jesus, but then he had gone off and got an education and was able to serve in other places. And as I saw that video and as I heard this lady who herself is from North Africa, it just impacted me as I thought about what was happening in that place and the believers and the hardship that they had to face. Let me tell you another story. At RTS we have housed uh, a group called Help the Persecuted and I have the privilege of being on the board for that group as well. Well, I was told a story recently of a man's conversion under ISIS. This man was a Shi'i Muslim, not a Sunni, so if you know anything about Islam, the Shi'i and the Sunni fight with each other. Well, this man was a Shi'i, and because of that, when, the, when ISIS rolled into town, they were rounding everybody up and shooting them. And so this man was lined up in front of a firing squad in an open grave. And as the firing squad got ready to shoot, in his mind flashed a picture of a sign that he had seen once that said, Jesus saves. He didn't know anything about Jesus, right? All he knew was that he needed to be saved at that moment. So in this moment of desperation, he cries out, save me, Jesus. The guns go off. 
he falls backward in the trench and realizes he hasn't been shot. Then, for the rest of the day, people are shot and bodies are piled on him. He crawls out. He goes back into town. He gets onto social media and publishes something. They realize he's still alive. He's running for his life. He finds his way to the shores of, of a, a, a body of water. There's some other people trying to run away. He, he climbs onto a boat that's overcrowded. The boat's going and, and things begin to become rickety on the boat. People are worried. He stands up and he says... Hey, everybody, let's cry out to Jesus. He saves. They threw him in the water, his fellow Muslims. He finds it, he's floating in the ocean for a while. He gets picked up. He, and long story short, he finds his way to a place where he hears the gospel and is saved. What do you think of when you hear stories like that? Is our God powerful? Is he able to do things? You know, we sit in our comfortable lifestyle. How does that speak back to us if we are willing to receive it? And then last story. Recently, or a a little over 12 months ago, I myself had the privilege of going to China and teaching there. And again, to see the Chinese people and to meet some Christians there and to see the work that was going on had a profound effect on my life. Remember this theme of humility. This, I guess, is what I want to leave you with from this passage here. This passage tells us that this one-way traffic view that we so often have of missions and even of ministry in general is not a position that the Lord would have us to, to take. When we are ministering to other people, they are ministering back to us. When, when someone is saved, that person's conversion ought to breathe life back into our lungs and in turn allow us to breathe life back into the lives of others. So I want to commend you here. What you're doing in having a missions emphasis over this month is fantastic. And this sermon in some ways is, is an encouragement to you to listen up, to get involved, to be part of this. Because the more that this ministers back into your life, the more confidence that you're going to be able to have in the Lord, just like Paul. My family and I have a dear friend from England. His story and testimony is quite wonderful, and I won't go even into how we first met, but I would count him today as one of my dearest friends in the whole world. I Skyped him last night. We Skype regularly together. His story is quite incredible. He, was, he grew up in a very blue-collar background, uh, alcoholism in his family. He ended up drinking himself and, as a result of that, became addicted to alcohol. His long-term relationship was broken up. He ended up losing his job and becoming homeless. His family disowned him. And so here he was on the street, and one day he was sitting in a park, and a man came walking past him, And at the same time, he was kind of looking at a church across the way and was arguing with God about how could God exist if his life was such a mess. And all of a sudden, he asked God, you know, answer me. And this man walks right in front of him and turns around and says, do you know why Jesus died for you? He was so freaked out that he went off and got some more alcohol. But long story short, uh, he he was saved through that experience. And... He's gone on to do a, the equivalent of an MDiv, 
he went on to Sheffield University and got his master's in philosophy, one of the top universities in the world. But as I talked to my friend Bruce, he said, you know the problem in all of this is that my own church still sees me as an ex-addict. I've been put in charge of helping the, the, uh, the soup kitchen and to ministering to uh, girls on the street. And he says, and that's the ministry I have. And now a new pastor has come. This pastor said, I want you to be the assistant pastor. But he said, I'm struggling constantly with the fact that the church won't listen to me, that no one will want to listen to me because I'm the guy, the ex-addict, who came to know Jesus. And yes, we want to know your story in so far as it tells us that. But we don't want to, you to minister back to us in any other way. Friends, I think this passage is wonderfully challenging and wonderfully encouraging for us today. Paul began as a missionary. And you can only imagine that he knew that he was taking God's word out and that he was going to be used of the Lord to do something amazing. But little did he know, perhaps, that the Lord was going to do something back into his life that would allow him to take the gospel back to his own people, the Jews. God would write the converts from Corinth on Paul's heart. And that made all the difference. What difference are other people making into your life today? Let's pray together.